0: This is KMTT Kimetzion Teitei Torah. And today on Wednesday we are sponsoring a weekly shiur by Rav uh, Dr. Avi Wolfish who's been doing a lot of work in the last few years on the study of Mishnah specifically giving a weekly shiur on reading Mishnah In this shiur, our sixth shiur of Masachat Rosh Hashanah, we're going to conclude our discussion of Rosh Hashanah Perakbet, Bet, focusing on the concluding Mishnah of the chapter, the one that describes the famous confrontation between Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. This confrontation is not only interesting uh, in its own right, but it also plays a very important role in the uh, ordering and structure of the chapter. We've already noted a couple of the points that make this Mishnah a crucial uh, flashpoint in the chapter. Uh, one of the points that we noted already and we discussed at some length uh, in our last shiur is the key word le where uh, Rabban Gamliel kiblan accepts the witnesses, Whereas at the end of the story, uh, Rabban Gamliel praises Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi b'chokma alecha etvahai, that you accepted my words. And we noted the dialectical role of this term lekabel which at the beginning represents the authority of the court to accept witnesses. And it would appear even rather arbitrarily. And at the end of the story, it uh, indicates the uh, fact that the court's authority is ultimately rooted in the acceptance of that authority by Rabbi Yehoshua, uh, the leading sage, who, uh, of course, will bring along with him the rest of the community. And we noted last time that this keyword word, the Kabel, links up with the same word that opens the chapter, V'Rishana hayu mekablin mikol adam. Uh, At first, they would accept uh, the testimony of the new moon from anyone, and this also reflects the uh, somewhat arbitrary authority of the the court to determine which witnesses they choose to accept and which witnesses they don't. And this is a lead-in to the point that closes the chapter where Rabban Gamliel's rather arbitrary or seemingly arbitrary acceptance of the witnesses Ultimately turns out to be conditioned on Rabbi Yoshua's acceptance of the authority. So the dialectic that frames our story of Rabban Gamalaya and Rabbi Yoshua also is used by the Mishnah redactor, Rabbi, to frame the chapter as a whole. Another point that we've already noted in previous Shiurim is the use of the, uh, the surprising use of the key term ri'iyah, lir'ot. Uh, through most of the chapter, Ri'iyah referred either to the sighting of the moon by the witnesses, or the interrogation by the court of the witnesses, determining how exactly they saw the uh, the new moon, or, in a uh, very interesting usage, we saw in Mishnayot Bet Dalid the uh, very spectacular vision of the Chain of bonfires that links the central authority in Yerushalayim to the outer reaches of the Babylonian uh, diaspora. Um, so the main use of the word ruiah is to sort of indicate a chain in which the vision uh, of the of the witnesses, what they saw, what they witnessed, is then transmitted through the interrogation of the court to the uh, people as a whole who also see, they, they see the message of the court that uh, uh, the new moon has been sanctified on such and such a day. In our Mishnah, however, the word Lirot, while it it's a central term in, in uh, describing the testimony of the witnesses, we saw it here, we didn't see it the following day, uh, but it also plays a new and surprising role when Rabbi Yoshua says, I see your words. In other words, I am convinced by them, I accept them, I rule in accordance with them. And so the word Lirot now takes on a, a new significance in this Mishnah. It's not, no, not only referring to the physical vision of the witnesses, it's also referring to the mental and intellectual vision of Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua who sees, in other words, he uh, is intellectually convinced by the arguments of uh, of Rabbi Dosa. And that then supplies a very important uh, link between the vision of the witnesses and the vision of the community, namely the vision of the court. The court not only uh, interrogates the vision of the witnesses and decides to accord it validity, but that decision itself <coughs> depends upon their own vision. Their own vision meaning their own understanding, their own ability to sift and weigh the uh, uh, value and validity of the uh, uh, of the testimony. This vision then serves a crucial role in. Mediating between the vision of the witnesses and the vision of the community, uh, this summarizes two very interesting and important points that link Mishnah uh, Tet Mishnah Chet Tet actually to the uh, uh, to the other Mishnah out in the chapter and and show you how this Mishnah brings together various threads and ideas uh, that have, uh, have have been scattered through the chapter, and this Mishnah sort of gathers them together and coordinates them into new ideas and and new messages. Uh, Before uh, turning to analysis of the story in and of itself, I'd like to note another couple of very interesting word plays that link Mishnah Chetet to the rest of the chapter. Uh, One of them uh, links... Our Mishnah to Mishnah Zayin. Mishnah Zayin, we're told, Rosh Beitin Omer Mikudash, the Ha'am Onin Acharav Mikudash Mikudash. So we're told about the sanctification uh, formula, where the Rosh Beitin pronounces Mikudash and the people respond by saying twice, ritualistically, Mikudash Mikudash. Then the Mishnah continues with the following dispute. The Tanakama says, Whether it was cited at its appropriate time or not seen at its appropriate time, you sanctify it, uh, which translates into whether it was uh, seen on the night of the 30th and then the court the next day convened, accepted the witnesses and determined the 30th day to be Rosh Chodesh, then of course, Mikadshinoto, uh, then uh, then of course the court will sanctify it, in other words saying Mikudash, but also Imlonir Abizmano, also if it was not sighted, the new moon was not sighted on the night of the 30th. So then, uh, you don't need witnesses to come and uh, uh, testify that they saw the new moon on the night of the 31st because... Uh, uh, once the night of the 30th, uh, once the day of the 30th has not been declared Rosh Chodesh, the 31st day uh, of necessity will be Rosh Chodesh. Nonetheless, says the Tanakama, Mikkadjinoto. The court has to convene on the day of the 31st, and with or without witnesses, the court will pronounce this day to be Mikudash, this day to be uh, Rosh Chodesh, and of course to thereby sanctify also all festivals that occur. During that month, Rabbi Lazar Bart Sadok disagrees, and he says, If it is not cited at its appropriate time, namely on the night of the 30th, then there is no need for the court to sanctify the 31st day because, because the heavens have already sanctified the 31st day. In other words, Uh, Rabbi Erezav HaTzadok seems to be setting up a contrast between months that are sanctified by man, namely on the 30th day. The 30th day only man can sanctify by uh, uh, ascertaining that witnesses have sighted the new moon on the night of the 30th. So on the day of the 30th, man is authorized to sanctify that day, which he does by proclaiming mikudash. But on the 31st day, there's no need for man to sanctify that day because heaven has already sanctified it. Heaven, by, uh, by uh, determining that no month will ever be more than 30 days, so the 31st day, by definition, will be the new moon. Therefore, heaven has already sanctified the 31st day. There's no need for man to reaffirm that by reciting Mikudash. So the dispute then is, given that the 31st day will automatically be sanctified, is there a need for, uh, in other words, K'idshuhu Shamaim, the way Rabbi Elazar Bar Tzadok uh, argues, is there a need for man to ratify this by proclaiming Mikudash? That's the argument of the Tanakama. Rabbi Elazar Bar Tzadok says, no, once heaven has sanctified it, then man's, Affirmation of that sanctity is uh, is really uh, unnecessary. Uh, there is, by the way, an interesting uh, analog to this machloket with regard to uh, regard to the halacha of bechor, where there is also a dispute of tanaim, since a bechor is sanctified by virtue of birth, uh, being the firstborn, the Rechem, the one who opens the womb. Of its mother, so the animal uh, who is thus born is automatically a bechor. And there is a at tanaim whether there is uh, a requirement for the owner then to uh, sanctify the bechor. In other words, it's certainly sanctified. The question is whether there is a mitzvah for man to ratify and affirm this by uh, by stating the sanctity, by declaring the sanctity, or whether. The fact that it's automatically sanctified uh, exempts man from the need to uh, to recite anything in that case. So that that seems to be a very similar dispute to the one that we have here in uh, in Mishnah Zayn. Now, uh, Mishnah Tet echoes a central uh, phrase from Mishnah Zayn. Let's. Uh, go back and reread a sentence we've already referred to several times during this series of Shiurim, uh, Rabbi Akiva's Drasha in Mishnah Tet. Rabbi Akiva darshan's uh, darshins as follows Eile Hashem, mikraei Kodesh Elu. these are the appointed times of Hashem times that shall be proclaimed, that sanctified, that you shall proclaim, and he concludes, okay, the, this concludes the words of the Pasuk, and, and, uh, or the the words that Rabbi Akiva wants to cite from the Pasuk, it's more accurate, and Rabbi Akiva then concludes, Bain Bizmanon bein shalom bismanan, whether at their right time or not, I, meaning God, have no muadot, rather than these, other than these, okay, uh, there's a very uh, daring drasha on the part of Rabbi Akiva which we can readily see by noting that he leaves out the last word of the pasuk. The pasuk actually reads ale mod'asham Hashem bimo'adam at their appointed times. And Rabbi Akiva leaves out the word bimo'adam and instead uh says ben bizmanan ben Shelo bizmanan whether at their appointed time or not. God has no festivals other than these. So, uh, whatever Rabbi Akiva's reasoning might be, which is a point that we'll come back to uh, at a later stage, whatever his reasoning may be in leaving out this word, but what he rep- uh, the, what, what replaces this word in the pasuk in his Rasha is ben bismanan ben sheloh bismanan, which is an echo of what we saw in. However, the same phrase has two different meanings in Mishnah Zayin and in Mishnah Tet. In Mishnah Zayin, as we saw, it meant whether it was seen on the 30th or not seen on the 30th. Rather, it first made its appearance on the 31st. In Mishnah Tet, Bain Bizmanan, Ben is not when the new moon was sighted, but rather when the court established Rosh Chodesh, whether the court established Rosh Chodesh on the right day or on the wrong day, on the right day meaning on the day that accords with when the moon was actually sighted. And the wrong day means not in accordance with when the moon was actually sighted, namely Rabban Gamliel, who has sanctified the Rosh Chodesh even though the sighting of the new moon is very, very much in doubt, given the apparent unreliability of the testimony. Nonetheless, as Rabbi Akiva, it doesn't matter. Ribbon Shalom ratifies whatever man has, uh, whatever man has decided, uh, even if he decided wrongly. So uh, you have this phrase appearing in two apparently very different meanings. One of them referring to the 30th versus the 31st, but nobody ever made any mistakes in Mishnah Zayin. Okay? and inshallah simply means on the day you expect it, namely the 30th, or not on the day that you expect it, namely it didn't appear on the 30th but only on the 31st, whereas uh, Rabbi Akiva uses it to mean whether the court ruled correctly or incorrectly, it doesn't matter, uh, because God accepts that. Now, uh, these two apparently very different uh, statements are linked by this common phrase of ben bismanan, ben shalo, bismanan, and uh, it would appear to suggest that that the Mishnah wants us to really draw a connection between these two these two statements, and I think we can readily see why the Mishnah wants to draw a connection between the two, because In both cases, there is a similar issue on the table. The issue on the table in both cases is who's really responsible for the sanctity of the festivals, for Rosh Chodesh and the festivals. Is it God or is it man? In Mishnah Zayin, the question uh, is when Shamayim has sanctified the day, does man have to ratify this? In Mishnah Teth, we're dealing with a more thorny and and more complicated question, which is, uh, in a way, the flip side of the first question. And that is, when man has wrongly sanctified the month, does God ratify that? So, in a way, uh, Ted is a kind of inversion of Mishnah Zayin. Mishnah Zayin tells us that, according to the Tanakhama, man must always ratify God's decision even when God has sanctified the month, man must ratify it, because only man ultimately can sanctify the new month. Rabbi Lazar Bar says, no, no, no. Man has the authority to sanctify the new month, but only on the 30th day. Once we've passed the 30th day, if God has sanctified it, there's no need for man to put his two cents in. Uh, in Mishnatet, on the other hand, uh, we have an inversion of that. We have man sanctifying the month on the 30th day, but in a very, very questionable manner, in a way that raises serious doubts, at least on the part of Rabbi Dosa and Rabbi Yoshua, whether in fact what Rabban Gamaliel has done is in any way legitimate, whether it's accurate, whether it's legitimate, and the answer that Rabbi Akiva proposes to Rabbi Yoshua is, man has complete authority. In other words, this is a kind of amplification of the opinion of the Tanakama in Mishnah Zayn, who says that only man can ratify the new month even when God has determined the 31st already, when heaven has already determined it, comes along Rabbi Akiva in Mishnah Tet, and he adds uh, an even more impressive idea. When man has established the new month, even if it's at variance with what happened in the heavens, that new month is nonetheless. Sanctified and God Himself ratifies whatever it is that man has decided, whether right or wrong. So you see here how Mishnah Tet complements an idea, picks up an idea from Mishnah Zayn and 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 complements it and and in fact extends it to its its furthest reaches. Another interesting word play that connects Mishnah Chetet to the rest of the chapter. Uh, we'll link it to Mishnah Hey, but in order to see this, we have to go back and read what we uh, what what Mishnah Hey stated. Mishnah Hey in the second part tells us about the original uh, practice that witnesses who have violated Chum Shabbat may not depart from Beit throughout the entire day, and Rabban Gamliel Hazaken's Takana permitting them to do so. And then the Mishnah throws in, as an aside, something that seems to be not particularly germane to Ilchot Kiddush Khodash, but simply uh, picking up on the cue and saying, the same way that, in our case of Masachet Rosh Hashanah and Hilchot Kiddush Achodesh, there was a dispensation granted to the witnesses who have uh, gone beyond Chum Shabbat, but may nonetheless... Uh, go uh, 2,000 Amod in any direction they choose a similar Takana exists in other cases cases uh, that we will immediately identify as Pikuach Nefesh V'lo elu bilvad says the Mishnah Ela ha-chachama ha-ba'al yaleid V'abal datziu min adbika min agais, min anahar, min elu kanchei ha-ir v'yeshlem alpayim amal uchol ruach All of these cases of Pikuach Nefesh, including, first and foremost, a uh, midwife, the Chachama, here refers to a midwife, a midwife, Habbali Aleid, who comes to help the woman give birth, and similarly, someone who comes to save from a a fire, or from an invasion of an army, or from a flood, or from an earthquake. All of these cases, the Mishnah says... They also uh, enjoy the benefit of the special takana of Rabban Gamliel as I I want to focus on the phrase chachama habaali In most cases, uh, in in Talmudic Hebrew, uh, the midwife is referred to as a chaya. You have it, for example, in the Mishnah in the 18th parak of Masechet Shabbat where the midwife is referred to as a chaya, that's the usual term. Uh, The only place where she's actually referred to as a chachama is here. And uh, when when the Mishnah says, chachama ha-ba'al so it seems to me that the use of language here uh, indicates that this is not just an aside that the Mishnah is uh, saying, well, you know what, this halacha that we have here also applies to other areas of halacha as well, but it's also a subtle allusion to the laws of Kiddush HaKodesh, as we can see in, uh, in our story. In our story, uh, Rabbi Dosa, in explaining why he is horrified by Rabban Gamliel's very strange Pesach, Rabbi Dosa exclaims, how can witnesses possibly testify that a woman on one day gives birth and the following day her belly is in between her teeth? We won't go into the question here of what teeth exactly we're referring to. Some of them say it refers to a part of the woman's anatomy, but in any event the, the point of the image is, is quite clear. Okay, this woman has given birth and the following day we see she is very, very pregnant, so that can't possibly be. By the same token it can't be that the old month, okay, which we call a Chodesh bar, you know, a pregnant month, has given birth the Molad, the new moon is called the Molad, a born moon, and nonetheless the following day we see that uh that she's very, very much pregnant. But it's not only the common image of a woman giving birth that links our Mishnah discussing the uh, uh, sanctification of the, of the new moon with the Halakha in mishnah Hey of Habali uh, Haba'aleid. It's also the word Chachama, Because how does our story end? Bo v'shalom Rabbi v'talmidi says Rabban Gamliel to Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi You are my master in wisdom in chokhmah. So the chachamah habaali yaleid is very reminiscent of the process that takes place in kiddush haChodesh. Kiddush haChodesh is also chachamim haba'im liyaleid. Okay, the old moon has given birth to the new moon. That's a natural phenomenon. But that natural phenomenon doesn't actually have any validity until the Chachamim ratify it. The Chachamim, Rabbi B'chochma, you must have the wisdom of the sages who ratify this uh, natural event. And by the same token, a woman giving birth is a natural phenomenon, but it can't take place properly without the Chachama. So the Chachama can violate Shabbat in order in order to help the natural event of giving birth take place. Similarly, in our Mishnah, at the end of the chapter, we have Chokhmah, uh, the wisdom of the sages, which comes which comes to give birth to the Molad, to the new moon. If regarding the previous wordplay of Bain Bizmanan, Ben Shalob Bizmanan, we had a clear understanding as to why the Mishnah redactor wanted to produce this connection, the the connection we're currently dealing with relating to uh, wisdom, midwifery on the one hand, and uh, childbirth on the other hand, is less clear. What, why exactly is the uh, Mishnah redactor interested in producing this connection? Is he simply trying to indicate that the pikuach nefesh involved in childbirth is also relevant to managing of the calendar. Managing the calendar is as vital a concern for the community as is the uh, childbirth for the, uh, for the pregnant woman, especially given what we saw uh, in Perak Aleph of the Masechet, that the festivals that are determined by sanctifying the new moon are festivals in which life and death depend. These are Pirkei Din. These are times when the, uh, the destiny uh, of the community and perhaps of the individuals as well is, uh, uh, is being established by God. And so there is Pikuach Nefesh involved in managing the calendar, much the same as there is Pikuach Nefesh involved in childbirth. Is there an allusion here, perhaps, to a theme that occurs in many cultures and especially in many ancient religions, uh, linking the uh, cycle of the moon—the uh, thirty-day cycle of the moon—with the uh, period menstrual period of a uh, of a woman, which is also roughly the same uh, the same amount of time. So the uh, uh, genitive processes of uh, of a woman are here being compared to uh, uh, being compared to the to the cycle of the moon. Is that perhaps what the what the Mishnah is uh, is suggesting here? One way or the other, the Mishnah does appear to be suggesting that uh, it's important to note that natural processes, including natural processes that generate life. Are processes that require human involvement. Uh, one way or another, it seems that uh, the Mishnah clearly has some uh, some idea in mind when they remind us that uh, the imagery that the Hebrew language preserves in describing uh, in describing the changeover of months is imagery related to pregnancy and birth. And uh, the Mishnah gives that imagery uh, a new and and vital spiritual meaning by using this wordplay to link Mishnah Chetet at the end of the chapter with Mishnah He at the beginning of the chapter. What I'd like now to do for the concluding part of this shiur is to discuss the story itself. The story of Rabban Gamaliyah and Rabbi Yoshua. And the first question I'd like to discuss is whether we can make any sense out of Rabban Gamliel's seemingly uh, uh, enigmatic psak uh, accepting these witnesses. Well, in order to do that, the first thing we have to do is take a close look at the case that came before the sages uh, in the second part of Mishnah Chet. Uh, the Mishnah says two witnesses came and said, "Rienuhu bismano, we saw it at its time." Uvelail iburo lo nirah. Okay, or according to Kitvei Yad uval uvelaila biiburo lo nirah. The second night, it doesn't say lo rienuhu. It says lo nira. The witnesses say rienuhu bismano, we saw it at its time, and then the Mishnah says uvelail iburo. Though near eye, it was not seen. Is this still the witnesses talking? Um, well, if it is still the witnesses talking, then we have a very strange phenomenon of witnesses coming uh, after the night of the 31st. Now those witnesses have come on the 31st. and The question is, what are they doing there? They, they want to sanctify the 30th day, but it's too late. The 30th day is gone. You can't turn the clock back. And so... Why would the witnesses even bother coming on the thirty-first day? Uh, in fact, if you recall, at the end of Perek Aleph, we learned that Al Mahalach The witnesses violate Shabbat to come and testify only if they can make it within the day. Mahalach If they have to make it by the next day, if they can't make it by the next day, there would seem to be no point. Uh, despite all these arguments, the Rambam uh, argues that this is all the testimony of the witnesses and that the witnesses in fact arrived after the 30th day and the Rambam poskens that it's possible to sanctify the new month retroactively. Uh, and uh, of course, you since we're talking about Rosh Hashanah, you can't celebrate Rosh Hashanah retroactively. Whatever they did on Rosh Hashanah, they did presumably, as we know from other sources, presumably they celebrated Rosh Hashanah, they blew the shofar, they recited the Tfilot Rosh Hashanah, but then when the witnesses didn't show up, so then they figured the following day was not Rosh Hashanah, and they observed it as Bet Betishrei, and so on, Uh, but then when the witnesses showed up, then... Rabban Gamliel decides retroactively to sanctify uh excuse me, when the witnesses didn't show up, they did observe the second day. But then when the witnesses uh actually showed up later, so Rabban Gamliel says, despite the fact that we observed the second day as also Rosh Hashanah, as the real Rosh Hashanah, nonetheless we uh uh we retroactively Legitimate the first day as the real Rosh Hashanah and observe Yom Kippur accordingly. Uh, The Rambam's reading will produce a significantly different understanding of Rabban Gamliel's position than the one I'm about to propose, but I think the better reading of the Mishnah is Uvaleli Burol lo Nir'an rather than lo Re'inuhu because the Mishnah wants to indicate that it's not that the witnesses have testified that they didn't see the new moon on the thirty first, but that nobody saw it. In other words, the witnesses appeared on the thirtieth, and they were accepted and the new moon was sanctified. And then the following night of Leliburo Lonir A by the members of the court. The members of the court were walking home after a long day in the courthouse. And they, uh, on the way, uh, they look up in the sky, and one of them says, uh, hey, where's the new moon? We supposedly have legitimated the testimony that uh, the new moon was sighted last night. Where is it now? Uh-huh. Nobody sees it. And uh, that's when Rabbi Dosa gets up and says, hey, they shaker We made a bad mistake, guys. We accepted the witnesses. They obviously misled us because it can't be that yesterday the woman gave birth and today we're looking up at the sky and we see she is very, very much pregnant. There is no new moon to be seen there. Okay. Well, if this is in fact what happened, then it's not that difficult to understand Rabban Gamliel's position. Rabban Gamliel is not swayed by Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinas' argument, not because there's no legitimacy to it, but because Rabban Gamliel feels that once you have already sanctified the new moon and Rosh Hashanah along with it, uh, you can't go back. You can't the following day reverse yourself. In other words, what we're saying is that an act of the court, even when it turns out that the act was not in accordance with what Reality is, uh, nonetheless, that this act has validity. Okay, so Rabban Gamliel is not disagreeing with the cogency of Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinus' argument, he's simply rejecting its practical implications. He's saying, you know, you might be right, it makes a lot of sense that these witnesses misled us and that we really should not have sanctified the previous day, but you know what, we did it already, what's done is done, we're not about to. To to uh, we presumably the witnesses the 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 shluchim have already been sent out uh, and and what are we going to do now It's too much of a bureaucratic headache to now turn around and and turn the clock back and change everything back from back from what what we've already decided. So we see then that the dispute between Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Dosa. Is whether reality is what ultimately determines the new moon, or whether what determines it, in fact, is the court. Okay, and this, of course, is exactly Rabbi Akiva's argument later on to to, to Rabbi Yoshua. He says, "Ben bizmanan, ben shelo bismanan, ein muadot ela elu." Okay, Ribon ratifies whatever the court has done, even if what the court did turns out to be turns out to be false. Uh, the next question I want to deal with is a question that has uh, uh, concerned uh, uh, commentators for hundreds of years, and uh, among other things, uh, some contemporary scholars have been influenced by this question, as well as one or two of the other questions we'll deal with a bit further on, uh, to suggest radic- radical rereading and even radical rewriting of our story, uh, all this which I think is unnecessary if we pay close attention to what our story actually says. The first question is, why does Rabban Gamaliel direct his Gzera only against Rabbi Yoshua and not against Rabbi Dosa? After all, Rabbi Dosa is the one who first rebelled against his decision. Um, so several answers have been suggested to this question. Some have suggested that Rabbi Yoshua had much more of a power base on the court. He was a much more powerful figure, according to the Gumaran Baba Kamada Fain Dalid. He was the Av Din, whereas Rabbi Dosa was a much more marginal figure and much less of a threat to the authority of uh, Rabban Gamliel. Others have suggested that Rabbi Dosa, as we know from Yavamotaf Yud Dalid, was a very old man at the time and uh, it wouldn't be very good public relations for Rabban Gamliel to insist that this uh, uh, venerable uh, old man with a long white beard take the journey that he imposes upon uh, upon Rabbi Yoshua. Um, I think all these reasons are true, but there's a deeper reason why the Zerah is directed only at Rabbi Yoshua. And the reason is, very simply, because Rabbi Dosa never poskined against Rabban Gamliel. And this is very important to, to, to understand for for how we read the story. Rabbi Dosa presented an argument. He said, sheker him." that's an argument. He says, it makes no sense. Our ruling was obviously wrong. Okay? Rabban Gamliel can tolerate that. Rabban Gamliel is not a tyrant who cannot brook any dispute or any controversy within his court. But there's one thing that pushes him over the brink, and that's when Rabbi Yoshua says, Roe ani et varecha When Rabbi Yoshua ratifies what Rabbi what uh, Rabbi Dosa has said, Roe ani et varecha always means in the Shon Chazal that he is issuing a contrary ruling that Rabban Gamliel cannot accept, and especially we're talking about Kiddush HaChodesh. Hidusha HaKodesh requires the unity of the people as a whole. And the unity of the people, the unity of the people uh, will be undermined if uh, people like Rabbi Yoshua rule against Rabban Gamliel. That's why Rabban Gamliel direct, directs his Gzerah against Rabbi Yehoshua. Third question is, why is the Gzera that Rabbi Yehoshua must violate his own Yom Kippur? Why would it not be enough for Rabbi Yeshua to accept Rabban Gamliel's Yom Kippur, simply to follow in a uh, f- follow Rabban Gamliel's Yom Kippur, and then, which is the first day, the earlier Yom Kippur, and then on the following day, which Rabbi Yeshua believes to be Yom Kippur, who cares? Who cares what he did? He's already went to shul. Rabban Gamliel can insist that he daven ne'ilah for the amud and and. Uh, so everyone will see that Rabbi Yoshoah has accepted Rabban Gamliel's ruling, and then what he does in private on the following day is nobody's business. And for Rabban Gamliel to insist that, that Rabbi Yoshoah violate his own day seems to be unnecessarily harsh. And the answer seems to be that uh, uh, that in fact, uh, Rabban Gamliel was worried that even if Rabbi Yoshua, uh, observes two days, uh, that could be equally damaging as if he, uh, as if he only observed his own day. Because uh, if Rabbi Yoshua observes his own day, it might be in private, but there's no guarantee that no one will know about it. And, uh, and as we know that a secret means you tell one person at a time, uh, the secret will get out. And if the secret gets out, then the word will rapidly spread that a leading sage, namely Rabbi Yoshua, wonders whether Rabban Gamliel's psak is enough. And that's enough. That's enough. If there's anyone who has any doubts about Rabban Gamliel's leadership, then just this uh, shred of doubt, which is supported by Rabbi Yoshua's behavior on the second day, would be enough to really, ultimately, pose a serious threat to Rabban Gamliel's authority. And this is exactly why Rabbi Akiva stresses in his drashat to Rabbi Yoshua, Hashem elu. He probably derives this idea from the word ele. Eile. Eile These and no others are moadei Hashem, which are the ones ashe which you shall proclaim the days that are proclaimed by the court are the one and only days that the Ribbon Roshul, um, uh, attaches any significance to. In other words, Rabbi Akiva is saying to Rabbi Yeshua, there is no point in your observing a second day of Yom Kippur because the only day that has any meaning is Rabban Gamliel's day. You think the Rabban Gamliel's day is good for public relations, it's good for being part of the community, and the second day is the real day. That's the day that God has approved because that's the day that corresponds to the real astronomical event of the new moon. But you're wrong. Only the day that has been ratified by the court is the day which has validity as far as God is concerned. And now we come to the final uh, and I think most interesting question, which is, Why, after this very uh, brilliant rasha of Rabbi Akiva, which Rabbi Yoshua does not reject, why does he feel the need to turn to Rabbi Dosa? So there are a couple of points that I think are in order here. One point is that uh, what the story is really about is not only the bottom line ruling that in the end, Rabban Gamaliel's ruling is accepted, what the story is really about is the difficulty of the individual in confronting a uh, ruling by the court that conflicts with his own understanding and his own conscience. And Rabbi Yoshua vacillates. Rabbi Yoshua Rabbi is described uh, when Rabbi Akiva first meets him as Metzer, He's in distress. Rabbi Yoshua is distressed by the need to choose between his loyalty to the institutions of Am Yisrael and his loyalty to the truth and to the Rebbeinu Olam. So Rabbi Akiva tries to satisfy him that there's no conflict; that in fact only what the court has determined uh, has validity, and God goes along with the with the community. There's a very brilliant drasha, and Rabbi Yeshua doesn't reject the drasha. And nonetheless, he goes to Rabbi Dosa. Why? Well, it seems, if we look closely at Rabbi Dosa's drasha, we'll see that Rabbi Dosa addresses a very different issue than the issue addressed by Rabbi Akiva. The issue addressed by Rabbi Dosa is not whether God or man has the authority, but rather, which man has the authority. Rabbi Dosa says, if we were to question the validity of Rabban Gamliel's court, notice, the language is not the validity of his ruling, but the validity of his court, we would have to question the validity of every court, and then he proves from the anonymity of Moshe's own court that the Torah wants to say that the authority of the court is not dependent upon who sits on the court, but rather, She'amdu beitin al Yisrael. Who is accepted by the community? Any court duly constituted and recognized by the community has the same authority as the court of Moshe. This is Rabbi Dosa's message. So we see then, we can reconstruct what Rabbi Yoshua's problem was. Rabbi Yoshua wondered, okay, Rabbi Akiva is right. God is willing to go along with the court. But which court? I'm all, I'm also a court. Rabbi Dosa is also a court. Rabban Gamliel maybe is not worthy of being the head of the court. Maybe I'm a greater scholar than he is. Maybe Rabban Gamliel, by... Make, issuing a wrong ruling in this case shows that he's not really a worthy leader. Maybe he attaches too much importance to the authority of a court and not enough importance to the truth. And so, maybe, uh, I should say, well, right, the court determines, but let me be the court and let my court determine which day is the real, is the real Yom Kippur and not Rabban Gamliel's court. Comes Rabbi Dosa and says, Any beitin that is accepted by the community is the recognized beitin. In the meantime, you are not recognized by the community. Rabban Gamliel is recognized by the community, so if you want to lobby and and unseat Rabban Gamliel sometime in the future, maybe things can change. But right now, okay, it is only Rabban Gamliel's ruling that has any validity because it is only Rabban Gamliel's court that is accepted by the community. The story then, as we see, really shows us that underlying the issue of Kiddush HaKodesh was really another issue altogether. The Mishnah ostensibly is a dispute about Kiddush HaKodesh. The drasha of Rabbi Dosa and Rabbi Joshua's insistence on hearing that drasha before he finally knuckles under to Rabban Gamliel's Gzera shows us, both of these show us, that the real underlying issue is the authority of the court. And this connection between Kiddush HaKodesh and the authority of of the court is, as we saw in last shiur, a dominant theme in the chapter, and a theme that finds its its, uh, appropriate and very dramatic conclusion in this concluding Mishnah of the chapter. Uh, At the beginning of next shiur, we will... Wrap up a few remaining points from, uh, uh, from this Mishnah and use that as a, as, uh, uh concluding remarks about Perak Bet and indeed of Prakim Aleph and Bet as a unit dealing with Rosh Chodesh. And then we'll begin our discussion of Perak so What I'd like you to do in advance of next year is, uh, take a close look at the Mishnah out of Perak know the basic contents, ask yourself whether this parak coheres, whether all the Mishnayot belong to the chapter, whether they belong in their appropriate places, in the places in which they're currently located, and we'll pick up with that chapter next time.